Hello, my name is Joe Schwartz, and I would like to take a moment to tell you about my podcast. It's called Still Unknown, and it's a podcast dealing exclusively with unsolved murders, disappearances, unexplained deaths, and other unsolved mysteries. If you are a fan of the classic TV show Unsolved Mysteries, then you'll definitely want to check out my podcast, as many episodes deal with cases featured on the show that still need answers. So look for Still Unknown on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast here. And let's solve some mysteries together. Welcome to Forensic Miles. My name is Miles. Hey guys, it's Sean. Forensic Miles is the unofficial companion podcast to the cult favorite show, Forensic Files. You've seen the show, you know the crime, but is there more to the story? Let's find out. This one is going to be a little bit different than the ones we've done before, and actually, I think that this one might be the longest episode yet. I know I've said that before, but I, but I really think that this one might be our longest episode. Let's do it. So this one, just a little forewarner, is actually about a child who is a murderer. So I know that's a little bit different than the ones we've done before. Um, So just keep that in mind because, you know, I think that there are a lot of questions. So do you want to just jump right into it, Sean? That sounds like a plan. Okay, so let's get our setting. We're in Newport Beach, California. Beautiful waves, clean beaches, and rays of sunshine, just as you would imagine any Los Angeles coastline to be. Sounds pretty nice, right? That sounds pretty uh, desirable. <laughs> According to uh, Nerd Wallet, in 2016, Newport Beach was in the top five most well-to-do communities in the U.S., so you can only imagine, like, actually how beautiful this place is. In the Forensic Files episode, they mention that the crime rate is relatively low. Most of the crime is property crime, so it's not, like, violent attacks or murders. It's mostly, like, going in and stealing property from, you know, houses and stuff like that. But on the morning of September 13th, 2006, the community would be shocked by a brutal attack. A body was found floating in the water by Newport Harbor Yacht Club. The body was that of a woman, and she had been wrapped in a bedsheet. Upon closer examination, it was determined that the woman had been stabbed to death multiple times. Some of these wounds were incredibly violent. At least two stab wounds were in the neck and had severed her jugular vein and carotid artery. But this wasn't the most shocking revelation. When she was unwrapped from the sheet, it was discovered that she had a butter knife that was still embedded in her eye socket. Ouch. Uh, Yeah. This immediately showed investigators that whoever had killed her was filled with an uncontrollable amount of hate. I mean, this is a very personal, very hate-filled kind of attack. Not only, like, stabbing somebody in the eye, but then 
leaving the weapon in their body and basically just throwing the body away like it was trash. Because she had no identification on her, they weren't able to make an ID right away. They did, however, find a clue about 100 yards away. Floating in the water was a cardboard box that was from a television. Investigators felt that this must have had something to do with the crime. I mean, this is an upscale neighborhood and a yacht club. Like, I highly doubt that they would have garbage just floating in the waters. I'm sure they charge hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Yeah. I mean, some of the boats there are probably really nice and expensive. Exactly. They wouldn't want the waters to look icky and gross. The autopsy showed that the victim had been stabbed a total of 52 times. Wow. The medical examiner felt that based on the wounds, it was more likely than not that there had been two killers versus just one. Hmm. And he felt that there were possibly three, maybe four murder weapons used in this attack. So there was the knife or the butter knife that was found still Still in her her eye. Um, They actually found a pocket knife kind of wrapped up in the sheet. Um, And then there was an unknown knife that was a little bit longer that was never discovered. Mm. But they still didn't know who the victim was. That is until they got a break. During the autopsy, they discovered that the victim had breast implants, and they were finally able to give the victim a name, Barbara Mullinex. Barbara hadn't had the easiest life. When she was 18, she was raped, which resulted in a pregnancy. She decided to give up the child for adoption so that the child could have a better life um, than she would have been able to provide. Barbara got married late, much later, and had a son named Alex. The marriage ended in divorce, and she ended up getting married two more times, I believe. I've seen that she was married twice. I've seen that she was married three times. Either way, the marriage that we're going to talk about is her marriage with Bruce Mullinex, which was either her second or third marriage. In 1987, Barbara met Bruce Mullinex, who was nine years her junior, and they were soon married. Only a few years later, in 1989, Barbara gave birth to their daughter, Rachel. Barbara, Bruce, Rachel, and her son from the first marriage, Alex, all lived together in Oklahoma City. In 2002, the couple ended up getting a divorce, and they both went their separate ways. Bruce ended up going to California, and Barbara and Rachel went to Tampa, Florida. I don't believe that Alex moved with either of them. I mean, Bruce was his stepfather, so he most likely wouldn't have moved with him. Um, And I definitely don't believe that he moved with Barbara. I think he kind of was old enough at this point and, like, out of the house. Probably went with, like, the dad, maybe. Maybe. He was older. He's an adult now. Hmm. So I'm not sure that he lived with anybody. Um, Anyway, not important. Unfortunately... Barbara quickly ran out of money, and an agreement was made that Barbara and Rachel would move back in with Bruce. It seems like sort of a really weird arrangement, but it seemed to work for them in theory. Supposedly, Bruce wanted Rachel to come, and she insisted that her mother come with her. She was worried that her mother had run out of money, that she wouldn't have anywhere to live, and that she would end up being homeless. So she convinced her dad to let her mother move in with them, which seems like an incredible amount of responsibility for a child. Yeah. 
At the time, it seemed like a good idea, like I said. Bruce wanted to be closer to his daughter, and both Bruce and Barbara wanted to see her graduate high school. So in 2005, they moved to Huntington Beach, California. This all sounds great, right? Happy family working together to make each other's lives a little bit easier. Unfortunately, like we've said so many times, nothing is ever quite as it seems. Although Barbara and Rachel were extremely close, Barbara even said that they were more than just mother and daughter. They were best friends. Living together, they worked together on set. Um, They were in like shows as extras together. I I believe Barbara was actually in an episode of CSI. They had their issues though. Before her divorce with Bruce, Barbara had acquired a drinking problem, and unfortunately, the alcohol turned her into a completely different person. Bruce said that Barbara drank, and she would pick fights with both himself and Rachel. He said that Barbara would say cruel things, things that a mother should never say to a daughter. In a quote by Bruce, he said, Barbara once told Rachel, quote, Well, you know, your dad is spending too much money, so he's going to whore you out on the streets so he can pay his bills. Jeez. It's a pretty tough thing for a mom to say about her own daughter. Absolutely. So, I mean, there's obviously some verbal mental abuse going on here. But the abuse seemed to go much deeper than this. In 2002, Oklahoma police were called by Rachel, who claimed that her mother had bit her. And... Bruce claimed that on another occasion, he had called the social worker because Barbara had hit Rachel. Nonetheless, Barbara and Rachel were close, and Barbara would do anything for her daughter and to keep her daughter in her life. Rachel said that she never blamed her mother for her behavior. She knew that Barbara had a very rough life, and she knew that Barbara wasn't the only one to blame. Bruce also had an alcohol problem, Um, although... Both Bruce and Rachel referred to Barbara as a, quote, mean drunk. Mm. It's the worst. Yeah, so so there's a lot going on here that's contributing to the dysfunctionality of this family. All of them are having some kinds of issues. But like I said before, Bruce and Barbara would do anything to make Rachel happy. When they lived in Oklahoma together before the divorce, Barbara and Bruce gave Rachel the biggest room in the house, and they themselves slept in the smallest. They would throw Rachel huge birthday parties, and when they moved to California, they even let her enroll in an alternative school that only met once a week. Yeah, I wouldn't mind if my parents signed me up for a school like that. Yeah, no. Rachel later described this time with her mother in an episode of 48 Hours Mysteries as, quote, I had a lot of fun with my mom. She had a wild and free spirit, fun to be around. I was spoiled. I was. It was like Disneyland. My life was really, really good, unquote. Rachel often picked up acting gigs with her mother, and her mother wanted to continue living with Rachel even after she turned 18. She didn't want to be homeless, and... To be honest, you know, it could have been about living with Rachel, but it also could have been about the fact that she didn't have a job and couldn't survive without the child support. Unfortunately, Barbara would never see her daughter turn 18. Once the investigators were able to identify Barbara, they began to look at the evidence. They were able to track where the box and the TV had been purchased. Believe it or not, it led right back to Bruce Mullinex. I guess not too surprising. I mean, you always got to look at the 
spouse or ex-spouse in this case to clear them first. Absolutely. And they did have a very strange kind of relationship right now. And even Bruce himself said, you know, later in an interview that his 48-hour mysteries, he knows that it's always the husband that's looked at first. Always. So he was well aware that, you know, it was coming. But, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. When investigators went to the condo that the family shared, they discovered that no one was there. Not Bruce and not Rachel, who was 17 at the time. Immediately, they feared that Rachel might be in trouble. Yeah, could have been, like, kidnapped. Absolutely, and it could have been the husband that did it. Yeah. Although nobody was in the home, they did find clues. In one of the bedrooms, they noticed that there was a collapsed bed frame, but no mattress or box spring. It seemed pretty weird, especially since Barbara had been wrapped in a sheet. One of the investigators' initial assumptions was that whoever had killed Barbara had killed her on the bed and then just kind of wrapped her up in the bed sheet and then, you know, taken her out to the ocean, which would have made sense, especially now that they can't see the bed because the bed would have had a ton of blood. Oh, yeah. I mean, 52 stabs. Yeah. It was probably soaked. Exactly. Upon further investigation, they discovered blood on the walls that appeared to have been cleaned up, as well as a sponge with blood on it, which was on the bedside table. So the uh, so there was a sponge, and there was like a little bit of blood on the corner of the sponge. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but typically, I choose to not leave my bloody sponges right on my bedside table. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> At least put it in the sink. They found a couple other things, though. They found a a bloody palm print on the wall. They also noticed that the butter knife that was found embedded in Barbara's eye matched the silverware that was in the kitchen of the family home. Oh, wow. So she was killed with her own silverware. Yep. They went ahead and checked with some of the neighbors, and one of the neighbors mentioned that on the night of the murder, he heard loud banging that lasted about 45 minutes. He said that it kind of started at like 1 a.m. and that it had woken him up. He also made kind of like an off-the-cuff uh, off remark that he wouldn't be surprised if a murder had happened there. <laughs> Which Little w- did he know. Exactly. He didn't know that a murder had actually happened there. And he said that to police, and police were like, uh-oh, connecting the dots here. Like, this must be where Barbara was murdered. Investigators knew now that they really needed to talk to Bruce. And... It would be sooner than they thought. Investigators initially thought that Bruce had, you know, kind of gone on the run and had Rachel. So it was an extreme surprise when Bruce actually turned up at the condo only a day after Barbara's body was found. He was shocked. He had no idea what was going on and basically explained to the officer that he had been out of town in Fresno for business, but when he wasn't able to get in touch with with either Barbara or Rachel, he started to get concerned that something was wrong and decided to come home. When they told Bruce that, you know, his ex-wife had died, he didn't really have a big reaction. He didn't really seem very concerned. But the minute that they said that Rachel was nowhere to be found, he got really worried. They were able to clear Bruce relatively quickly with Um, his palm print because it didn't match and they kind of started to shift their viewpoint the only person who had been in the house that night was rachel 
What if Rachel wasn't a victim? What if she was the killer? Turns out that Rachel had some issues of her own, which is completely understandable based on the dysfunctionality of the household she was being raised in. Yeah, I mean, it's... I said it earlier, but it's just a weird situation to be in. Definitely. When she was 15, Rachel had gotten pregnant and had an abortion, which is honestly enough to put anybody over the edge. That is a lot for anybody, but for a 15-year-old, I couldn't even imagine the kind of, you know, mental issues that stemmed from that. Yeah, I mean, same time her parents are going through the divorce and... um... There's a lot going on. Yeah, a lot to take in and for such a young child. Exactly. Um, and actually, you know, her mother had been very helpful with this situation. She didn't get angry at Rachel. And I think, you know, that has a lot to do with she had similar experiences when she was younger. Yeah. Rachel had unfortunately followed in her parents' footsteps and also turned to alcohol as a coping mechanism. She was also known to have cut herself. But in May of 2006, Rachel met a boy. Mm. A darn boys. Exactly. A boy by the name of Ian Allen. He was really good looking. Rachel described him as a, quote, great catch. However, he was 21 years old and Rachel was still only 17. In the beginning of their relationship, things were fine. Supposedly, Ian would come over and help Barbara with chores around the house. But as the relationship became more serious, Barbara was starting to sense that, you know, she was losing her daughter and that her dreams of living with her daughter slash having her daughter, you know, be kind of her meal ticket were kind of dwindling away. And it seemed that Rachel was starting her own life. And, you know, all of these plans that Barbara had had were basically disappearing in front of her eyes. Supposedly, when Barbara found out that Rachel and Ian were intimate, she flipped and threatened Ian with a statutory rape charge. But Rachel was not having it, not one bit. You know, she was in love with Ian. So she made her parents sign a letter claiming that they would never, ever, ever threaten Ian with a statutory rape charge ever again, and that they gave their permission for the two of them to date. Ian basically carried this letter with him everywhere in case he got pulled over by the cops or there was some situation. He had proof that they had parental consent for this relationship. Yeah. See who's in charge. Exactly. You can tell who has, you know, who is wearing the pants in this family. In exchange for this, you know, written consent, Rachel would have to agree to be home by her 1 a.m. curfew. Now, I'm just going to say, she's 17 years old with a 1 a.m. curfew. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I was home by 8 every night when I was 17. I mean, I guess it helps that... um... She only has school one day a week. Mm-hmm. And you know where she was spending most of the time. Right. She was spending it all with Ian. So, you know, there's a lot going on here. Within months, the two had announced their engagement, and this put Barbara seriously over the edge. Only a few days before the murder, there was a serious altercation between Barbara, Rachel, and Ian. 
Rachel had not arrived home by her 1 a.m. curfew, and Barbara was livid. She drove to Ian's house, he lived with his parents, and essentially made a scene, waking people up, screaming, and dragging Rachel out of the house. She then grounded Rachel and told her that she was never to see Ian again. Barbara was kind of known to do stuff like this, and, you know, in the Forensic Files episode, they mentioned that Ian had never experienced something like this before. I mean, Barbara would go to your work, she would call your employer, she would go to your brother's school, she would do anything that she had to do to make a scene and basically show that she was in control. And in this particular instance, she felt really out of control. She felt like she was losing her daughter. Yeah, almost like a manic state. Exactly. But like I said before, Rachel wore the pants in the family and the day before the murder, so only like two days after this incident happened, Barbara let Rachel and Ian go see a movie. Interestingly enough, the movie was called Lady in the Water. <sighs> which is not about murder, but it is still kind of interesting still to think an about. Ironic title. Bruce didn't know where Rachel or Ian were. He hadn't been able to get in touch with them for a couple days, and Ian's family also hadn't been in touch with him. However, he, or Bruce, couldn't comprehend that his daughter would have anything to do with the murder. He said that he could believe it if it were Ian, but there was no way that his daughter was involved in killing her. Like, absolutely, 100%, not a possibility. Interestingly, though, there was even more proof to show that Rachel might have something to do with it, because... Rachel had actually attacked her mother with a knife once before. Barbara had refused to press charges, but there are pictures of Barbara with knife wounds on her body. So basically, Rachel is no stranger to a knife attack. Mm, No. At this point, they felt good about the fact that it was likely Rachel and Ian who were involved in the murder, so they needed to head to Ian's home to see if they could find any any evidence of of the crime. Rachel's still missing at this point. Both Rachel and Ian have not been seen in about, um, I think, in about two or three days. They were able to conduct a search of Ian's family home, and when they looked on the computer, they found that someone had printed off directions to Tampa, Florida, on the morning of the murder, so like a couple hours after, after the murder would have happened. Soon after they discovered this, they got word that Ian had used his credit card in Louisiana. Now, I'm not 100% sure it was his credit card. It could have been Barbara's stolen credit card. Either way, they were able to track him down by this credit card transaction. And very quickly, they were able to take both Rachel and Ian into custody. During questioning, Rachel claimed that she had nothing to do with the murder and that Ian had killed Barbara and kidnapped her forcibly. And I would highly encourage you to watch this Forensic Files episode because they've got this little clip of um, this questioning. And, you know, you've got to keep in mind, like, Rachel actually made money from acting. Yeah. And in my opinion, it does look like she's kind of acting. But this is what she says. I was asleep. It was the middle of the night. I heard my mom scream my name. I ran into her room and I saw Ian standing there on top of her, stabbing her. I tried to push him off and he pushed me off and he knocked me out. End quote. 
she later said that she had no memory of anything that happened and she didn't wake up until she was in an, in a hotel room bound and gagged. It was later proven that they were never in this particular hotel room that she claimed to have been in. <sighs> Ian was essentially telling the same story though. He actually admitted to killing Barbara and he showed remorse, but he, he was also saying that he had done it alone and that Rachel hadn't had anything to do with it. He said that he had planned to scare her, but the situation quickly got out of hand and ultimately he killed her. Gosh, to be that young and manipulative. He, yeah, he's 21. For, I mean, Rachel. To oh. be that young and manipulative. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. Um, he said that he forced Rachel to help clean up the mess and that he would do anything to prove that she wasn't involved so that she could go home where she belonged. Investigators didn't believe this story, and I'm going to tell you a couple of their points. First, it said that Rachel was feeding Ian half-truths about how Barbara wanted to destroy his life and his family's lives. I'm sure it was probably believable if it was true that Barbara, you know, had this kind of blowout on him. I'm sure it could seem that, you know, some of these things were true and that she was actually out to ruin his life when I think it was more about the fact that she was losing control of, of Rachel. Right. Second, the blood on the edge of the sponge that was found in the condo belonged to Rachel showing that, you know, she was cleaning up, but she had to have been cut before she was cleaning up. Otherwise there wouldn't have been blood on the sponge. And we all know that there is a risk of cutting yourself when you're stabbing somebody else. Pretty much a guarantee, at least in everything I've ever seen, during stabbings, you're just bound to cut yourself. Yeah, I agree. Especially if you're in a rage like it seemed like they were. Right. Third, duct tape was found in the back of Ian's car that matched the duct tape that was found on the cardboard box that was found in the ocean. So essentially they think that Barbara was put in the cardboard box, duct taped up, and then dropped. dropped. So the box was kind of used for transportation. Um, Anyway, Rachel's fingerprints were found on the roll of duct tape that was in Ian's car. Fourth, there was video footage of a convenience store only hours after the murder where Rachel is basically aimlessly wandering around the store shopping, seemingly without a care in the world, and then she casually wanders out to the car to meet up with Ian. Not really the behavior of somebody who claims that they were forcibly kidnapped. It definitely seemed like they were kind of in a relationship. Fifth, now I only saw this in one article, which I will link, And I'm not exactly sure where this recording took place, but I think it was in a cop car. So both Ian and Rachel were in the same place with a recording device. Rachel was recorded reminding Ian to take full responsibility for the murder and basically telling him that he's got to tell police that he kidnapped her. (laughs) Six. Ian had stolen a gun from his family home. Both Ian and Rachel's DNA was on the gun. However, there was much more of Rachel's on there. So if she had her hands on the gun, why hadn't she used it to get away if she was actually truly forcibly kidnapped? Um, Seven, I think we're at. Last but not least, there are text messages. 
Those darn text messages. Yep. Always come back to bite you. They sure do. Supposedly, over the th- over the three days before the murder, Rachel and Ian had exchanged over 450 texts. One of the texts read, quote, We have two options, run or Tuesday. Or there's another option, you come over and apologize to my mother. During the trial, the prosecutor claims that the word Tuesday is actually a code for the word murder. Since Barbara was killed on a Tuesday, it makes sense. Yeah. However, the defense stated that it was a typo and the text should have read, quote, run on Tuesday, end quote. Rachel had claimed that they had plans not for murder, but to run away. But I think that's a little weird because she specifically said there were two options, run or Tuesday, or there's another option, which would be the third option, apologize to my mother. Yeah. So I I don't think that Rachel was telling the truth. They might have planned to run away, but... I think they had also talked about this before. She didn't really do a good job of setting her lie up. Mm, no. No. Her claim was that on the night um, they were meant to run away, her mother saw Ian and threatened to call the police, telling them that he was trying to kidnap her. Rachel had thought that Ian was going to try and calm her mother down, but instead heard a struggle only to enter the bedroom and see Ian stabbing her mother. The only thing is, Barbara was killed with three separate knives, like I said earlier. One knife from the kitchen, one long knife that was never found, and a pocket knife which belonged to Ian. It definitely seemed more like Barbara had been attacked by both Ian and Rachel versus Ian using three separate knives to kill her. Right. Rachel said that she had tried to get Ian off of Barbara, but failed. When asked why she didn't have any wounds, her only response was that Ian wasn't trying to stab her, he was trying to stab Barbara. Which, and I don't know, but I think if you're in a fight with somebody that has one to two to three knives in their hands, you're definitely going to have some kind of inner injury. And, you know, she, was also said, she also said that she was hit in the head and knocked out, but she did not have any visible head injuries yeah and she would have had to be hit pretty hard i think to To be knocked out to be knocked out later that night about four hours after the murder one last text message went through from rachel's phone it was to ian and it said quote i love you so i think this is really interesting if you have the ability to be on your phone and you're forcibly kidnapped why wouldn't you call or text a friend your dad, somebody. Why would you text your boyfriend who is supposedly the one that kidnapped you? I love you. Yeah. So it's just a lot of evidence kind of stacking up against her. During her trial, Rachel testified on her own behalf, saying that she didn't kill her mother. However, after two and a half days of deliberation, the jury didn't agree. They found her guilty of murder and she was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. She was 19 at the time of her conviction. Ian had had a separate trial and ultimately was also sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Although Rachel claimed that she loved her mother and that she was her best friend, her diary frequently wrote about how she hated her mother. But honestly, let's all pull our diaries out and see what we've written that we don't necessarily mean. I mean, that's a place where you can vent. Right. There was an interesting poem, though, that was found to have been written by Rachel, and Sean, I'd like you to read it. 
All right, a poem titled Life and Death. Life, death, what does it mean? Some people get great lives, and some people, well, do you know what those kids with bad homes do? They cut, do drugs, commit murder, burn themselves, cause harm to others. They say to turn to God, give me a break. God does not control life, and he doesn't control death. So how do they survive in this horrible world? Life and death. So I think it's clear that Rachel is, you know, obviously going through a lot. And she's got a lot of kind of darkness that she sees in her life. Prosecutors believe that Rachel and Ian were in contact in the hours before the murder, updating each other on what was happening. There are texts to to prove it. Um, These texts said things like, quote, she's taking a Xanax in a few, unquote, she woke up, unquote. They believed that Rachel let Ian into the home. Ian grabbed knives from the kitchen and went upstairs. The evidence suggests that uh, that they were both in the bedroom and stabbed Barbara over 50 times. The butter knife in the eye happened when Barbara was still alive. Oh my gosh. And it didn't kill her. Rachel used the sponge to clean the, the uh, blood on the walls and left her DNA. Ian's prints were the ones found on the wall. The couple put the body in the box and sealed it with the duct tape. A neighbor said that they actually saw something large being dropped out of the condo window, and it was presumably the body, and then it was then lifted into Ian's truck. Mm-hmm. They then dumped the truck in, or the body into the ocean, Um, And they, the mattress was later found near the condo completely burned. After the trial and realizing that his life was over, Ian admitted that Rachel was involved in the murder. Rachel claimed that Ian was abusive towards her and that their relationship was basically her worst decision, which is probably not an understatement. Who knows to say if she hadn't met Rachel or if she hadn't met Ian, if this might not have happened. Rachel never has admitted to the crime, um, and her family, including her father, has always stood by her. Her father even said um, during the trial, quote, I know her better than anybody on this planet. I know in my heart she didn't do this. In this world, sometimes, uh, in this world, sometimes just because you're convicted of something doesn't mean you did it, unquote. Um, and, you know, I'm pretty sure her grandparents also stood by her during during the trial. So... I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to say that, I mean, she did it. She was involved somehow. Not to say that she didn't have a terrible, she didn't have terrible issues and that there wasn't something else going on in her life. Um, But I don't think that that gives anybody the right to, to kill somebody. Prosecutors can see right through her, though. Um... The prosecutor in the case basically said, quote, she's an, ex- an expert manipulator who is a danger to our society. She should never be let out. She's never shown remorse for the murder. Um, and even in, I'm pretty sure it was an article, article from 2016, which I'll attach, um, the only remorse she shows is for the future that she could never have. She's like, oh, I wanted a family. I wanted to go to college. I wanted all these things. Um, she's just selfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that also goes to show that she really threw Ian under the bus. She was going to let him go down for it. And the minute that she realized that it wasn't going to go her way, she 
basically just let Ian kind of be on his own, deal with it himself, and yeah. wanted nothing to do with him. Um, and, you know, I th- I think she was just kind of setting him up this whole time. Probably. But, you know, her brother does not think that she was the master manipulator, and we're, we're going to get into that in a second. So in a blog post on the ForensicFilesNow.com um, website, there is an interview with Alex, Barbara's first son, that goes a little bit deeper into the manipulation that could have driven Rachel to make the decision that she did. Now, this is Alex's opinion. He is her brother. He grew up with her, um, Barbara, as a mother and, and Rachel as a sister. So... This, these are kind of just his thoughts. First off, Alex claims that he isn't sure Rachel actually attacked Barbara with a knife all those years back. Um, he said that his mother had actually cut herself in the past and threatened to call police and have it blamed on Alex. Oh, wow. So I think that's kind of interesting. Um, he also said that Barbara would try and control both of them, calling their jobs and, like, threatening them, which is something that she clearly did with Ian's family, with Ian and his family. He said that he wasn't all surprised that she was murdered because she was messing with people's lives and trying to control them. Um, he does believe that Rachel was involved in the murder. However, he thinks that it was Ian who was essentially the mastermind in the whole thing. To me, it sounds like the apple doesn't fall fall too far from the tree. Yeah. In regards to Rachel and Barbara. Right. They did seem to have some similar, you know, traits. Yeah. Anyway, um, I also think that it is interesting to note that there is a quote by Bruce that asked whether or not he thought Barbara was a good mother, and he said, yes, he definitely did. So I think that's also interesting. Um, And I feel like, you know, we're not able to hear from Barbara. Um, I don't know, you know? Yeah. We don't really know what it was like in that family. Right. The extent of manipulation and control that Barbara was was trying to show um and we also don't know you know whether some of the stuff was kind of over exaggerated by Bruce and Rachel because Bruce is going to stand by Rachel no matter what for the rest of her and his life he's going to do what he can to defend his daughter but basically that's all I have. Rachel and Ian are both still in prison. Um, I think that Rachel is up for like a parole hearing soon. Um, cause her brother had mentioned something about the coronavirus possibly like pushing it back and making it, um, not happen when it's supposed to. Uh. So I think that's very interesting. Um, I think this case is all around just, an awful story of abuse and manipulation and um, just like a very sad, sad story. Yeah, definitely. Because all of their lives could have gone a different way, just had one one thing changed, one thing been diff- different. Right. So uh, we'll never know. Nope. But we hope that you liked this episode. Um, And we'll be back with you next week for another one. See you guys later. Bye.